Matthew for leading us uh, in those prayers. Um, if you have been following through uh, the last couple of weeks, if you've been around uh, or have um, uh, maybe listened in on, on the sermons online, you'll know that we are in the third of these three uh, visits to, to the Book of Lamentations. Um, and you'll remember that last week we, we very much um, reached a sort of peak moment in the book. Um, Matthew took, it, took us to it. Um, at the beginning of his prayers in chapter 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we get this sort of peak moment. And in some degree, you kind of think, oh, let's finish there then. That's good. You know, we've arrived at this sort of glorious moment of the declaration of of just how good God is and how richly he loves. Um, And you might be thinking, well, that's a good place to finish. Um, but then chapters 4 and 5 come. Uh, and they plunge us back into the abyss, back into the darkness and bleakness uh, of sorrow and loss. And partly I think they do that in order to teach us what grief is so often like. It isn't neat and tidy. It doesn't end um, in a single moment. But just as we think we've begun to progress, uh, again it comes. uh, Like a a wave washing over us uh, once more. Um, And the Christian faith is is not like a sort of get out of jail free card. A sort of quick panacea that just makes everything all right. um, And we can tussle on quickly past. Um, Now the striking thing about these poems, I think... Uh, in Lamentations, is the way that hope and grief exist side by side. The compassion of God right there alongside the agonies of loss. Because I think the character of believing faith is the ability to believe in the face of excruciating loss and hardship and difficulty. It, it's the heroic faith that we were thinking about last week a faith that stubbornly presses on, uh, even in the deepest darkness, stubbornly reaching out for God. Now, of course, the losses that we face are different to the losses of lamentations. Uh, Not for us, the overthrow of a city, Uh, but for us, perhaps, the agony of bereavement, the frustration of disability, the silent grief of infertility, the limitations that come from a chronic illness, the despair that comes from a terminal one, the agony of a broken marriage, the sadness of a marriage that never comes, the corrosive ongoing pain of a marriage that persistently disappoints. And in the face of of such things as these, and more besides, Lamentations teaches us how to pray. That's the final lesson that we're going to learn as we work our way through chapters 4 and 5. I found these chapters probably the hardest um, to to work on and think about um, and prepare. Um, So let me pray for us uh, before we come uh, to chapter 4. I sense that we need God's help. Uh, Father God, um, we 
arrive again this evening in uh, a part of the Bible that is um, much less familiar to us uh, than other parts, I guess. Uh, And we pray, therefore, very much for your help that in unfamiliar territory uh, we would discover new and important things uh, about you uh, and about the way that we uh, must, can, should uh, relate to you. Uh, Please help us as we read and think together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read chapter 4 first, some thoughts on that, and then we'll come to, uh, to chapter 5 um, in a moment or, or two. Um, if you've been reading ahead, um, I kept meaning to tell you to, to read ahead if you've uh, been working your way through, that would have helped. But if, uh, if you have, you'll know that there are shocking things um, to come in chapter 4. If you haven't, uh, then be warned. Um, we're on page 828, um, Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has lost its luster, the fine gold become dull. The sacred gems are scattered at every street corner. How the precious children of Zion, once worth their weight in gold, are now considered as pots of clay, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my people have become heartless like ostriches in the desert. Because of thirst, the infant's tongue sticks to the roof of its mouth. The children beg for bread, but no one gives it to them. Those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those brought up in royal purple now lie on ash heaps. The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Their princes were brighter than snow and whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than rubies, their appearance like lapis lazuli. But now they are blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as a stick. Those killed by the sword are better off than those who die of famine, racked with hunger, they waste away for lack of food from the field. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the peoples of the world, that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. Now they grope through the streets as if they were blind. They're so defiled with blood that no one dares to touch their garments. Go away, you're unclean, people cry to them. Away, away, don't touch us. When they flee and wander about, people among the nations say, they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are shown no honor, the elders no favor. Moreover, our eyes failed, looking in vain for help. From our towers, we watched for a nation that could not save us. 
People stalked us at every step so we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the sky. They chased us over the mountains and lay in wait for us in the desert. The Lord's anointed, our very life breath, was caught in their traps. We thought that under his shadow we would live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Eden, you who live in the land of us. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. The chapter is a shocking chapter in lots of ways. Again, it revisits uh, the awful trauma that arose out of the siege of Jerusalem, the overthrow of the people of God uh, by the enemy Babylon. Uh, As I said, it, it plunges us back into the awfulness of grief and sorrow. Um, and it is indeed the way that grief seems to work. Not neatly and tidily, but kind of cyclically. And just as we thought we'd begun to emerge, uh, that tidal wave of grief hits us again, tossing us back into the waves, uh, bewildered, struggling to find a foothold in the midst of our grief. But if loss is like that, then I think one lesson that we begin to see from Lamentations is not to run from it, Uh, that it does need to be faced up to, even spoken out. I read of a man who, in the midst of terrible loss, had a dream uh, in which in his dream he he found himself uh, running west, chasing after the sunset, trying to escape the darkness and catch up uh, with the sun that was setting to the west of him. And it seemed to him that his dream was like his his sense of trying to escape the awfulness and the darkness of his bereavement. He wrote to his sister, to tell her about the dream. She replied, writing, My dear brother, the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun or to find the light is to head east, plunging into the darkness until one finally comes to the sunrise. I think that's what's happening here. Another visit into the horrors of loss and suffering and grief in order to finally find the light. So it's a loss where everything good seems to have come undone, but the theme of reversals is very strong and powerful here again, isn't it? See it there in verse 1, gold has lost its luster, fine gold become dull. And we get a sense through the chapter that no one has escaped. It's a sort of little catalogue of all the different people who have been hit by this terrible uh, siege. Neither the precious children, verse 2, or infants, verse 4, not the upper classes eating their delicacies, in verse 5, or the nobility with lily-white skin, in verse 7, not even the king, the anointed one, verse 20, have escaped the loss that has hit them. 
And, and the suffering, as you gathered, as I read through, the suffering is almost too awful to listen to. A city besieged, where starvation is the terrible result. That's why, verse 9, those killed by the sword are better off, because at least they're spared the famine. Terrible famine where racked with hunger, people waste away for lack of food. It's a terrible thing to die of hunger. Uh, some of you perhaps saw the film. Some of you will remember the incident. Uh, it's way back, 1972, and bizarrely, it was a Friday uh, a 13th in October uh, when a Uruguayan airline crashed into the Andes Mountains, 11,000 feet up. Amongst those on board were uh, a rugby team um, uh, traveling to Chile uh, to play a rugby match. Uh, there were 45 on board when the airline crashed. 28 survived the initial impact. 17 days later, an avalanche hit the wreckage where the people were still sheltering, and eight more were killed. It was only a week or two into their ordeal up on this desperate, desolate mountainside uh, that on a tiny transistor radio, uh, they heard the terrible news that the search for them had been called off. The mountain terrain was bleak, no vegetation, nothing to eat. Nothing, that is, except the bodies of the passengers that had died and been preserved in the snow around them. And after much agonizing, as their hunger worsened and worsened, uh, they took the terrible decision to turn to cannibalism in order to survive. A full two months after the crash, two survivors gave up waiting and decided to take what they thought would be a fatal journey up over the mountain to try and find help. They walked for ten days, mostly through waist-deep snow, before finally stumbling upon two peasant shepherds one of them, whom then had to ride for 10 hours to raise the alarm and get help. Two days before Christmas, rescuers finally arrived at the crash site where they found 14 still survived. Initially, no one spoke of what had happened at the crash site to enable them to live. But journalists discovered and made it known. And there was initially widespread outrage. The taboo against such things is so terribly, terribly strong. It was only when it was revealed that those who had survived had made a pact together to agree that if any of them died, their bodies could become food for the remaining survivors, that the public outrage began to fade as they realized the extent of the desperation of the people involved. I tell you these things because verse 10 is truly shocking, isn't it? And I don't want to duck it. I don't want to hurry on past it. 
with their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children who became their food when my people were destroyed. Not vicious, uncaring mothers, compassionate ones, doing the only thing they could think of to do to survive in the face of starvation. And of course we want to say, how? How can you believe in a good God in the face of such things? But this is our world, isn't it? Our world is full of terrible things. Awful, terrible things happen every day. Appalling things across the world, day after day. And if we don't do the hard work, if we don't wrestle with the awfulness of the suffering in our world, because we're in the comfortable West and avoid it so much of the time, then when suffering hits us, our faith will be very, very fragile in the face of such things. Now, tonight's not the time uh, for an extended apologetic uh, of how we can believe in a good God in the face of suffering. If, if you've never wrestled with that, um, then um, there are a few copies um, at the back of what I think is one of the best books um, in struggling around that, When God Weeps, uh, Johnny Erickson and Steve Estes' book, exploring how we understand uh, a good God in the face of the awfulness of suffering. Uh, tonight's not the time for me to, to provide that kind of apologetic. But you do see, don't you, that setting God aside doesn't solve anything. Refusing to believe in God doesn't make things better. The suffering's still there. Same famine, same terrible consequences. Only all we've done is remove any meaning. Just senseless, random violence. A world of selfish genes where the strong destroy the weak for no good reason other than because they can. Now, removing God solves nothing. And lamentations won't let us go there. It won't let go of God. It dares to confront the awfulness of suffering and invites us to, to dare to do so also and still cling to God. So first we, we see the awfulness of suffering. See, secondly, a stubborn restatement of hope. Hard and terrible as it is, our writer dares to, to, to conclude that God's hand is in this. Verse 11, the Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He's poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. No one had believed it possible that Jerusalem could fall, verse 12. But it happened. Why, verse 13, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who failed to speak out warnings to the people of God. So that instead of looking to God for help, they sought out political, military aid. See that over there in verse 17, from their towers, they watched for a nation to help them, but that nation never came. They were looking for human aid, and they should have been turning to God. It is a terrible picture of judgment, a terrible picture for us of what happens when we set God aside when we pretend that we don't need him 
that we can live without him. But then much to our surprise, at the very end of the chapter, we, we get injected a note of, of hope, another kind of reversal there in verse 21. Uh, let me read that again. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of ours, but to you also the cup will be passed. You'll be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. So you see the reversal? The enemies of God, Edom, may be singing now, but they are going to be brought low. While the suffering people of God are promised restoration. I think it is significant that chapter 4 ends this way. Um, I've, I've talked to you before about the way that these first uh, four poems, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, are all written in acrostic form, um, working their way through the Hebrew alphabet um, in a very organized kind of way. But that ends at this point. Chapter 5 isn't acrostic. Uh, we'll come to it in a second. But, but, but So I think it's significant that the last verse in this very structured, organized way speaks out a message of hope. Probably the most hopeful, confident verse in the entire book. And, and in response, what we have in the final chapter is a prayer. It is as though, I think Eugene Peterson said that... Um, suffering's best result is prayer. You know, when the hardest things happen to you, the best thing that can happen as a result of that is, is that we're driven to pray. Um, and that's what we have in the conclusion of the book. Uh, chapter 5 is one long prayer. Um, and everything is slightly different about chapter 5. Um, again, um, that may not be quite obvious. I mean, everything's, it's shorter, it's as if we're coming into a conclusion. Um, it's not acrostic, organized, alphabet-driven. Uh, it's still 22 verses, but um, not um, working its way through the alphabet as it was before. The rhythm shifts, too. Uh, you can't catch that in the English, but um, uh, the previous chapters have all been three beats, two beats, three beats, two beats. Matt, is that a musical thing? Is that how a lament goes? Um, this, the, the, I read that that's the way that a dirge goes. Three beats, two beats. Um, this final chapter, chapter five, three beats, three beats, just changes the rhythm um, as if something different is happening here. The voice shifts too. It's um, first person plural. Uh, we, us, um, the people now speaking out to God, their corporate prayer to him. Um, and then finally the perspective is shifting because now it's as if they're looking back. It's as if they're, they're now beyond uh, the worst of this terrible suffering and they're gazing back on it to try and make sense of it. Uh, so all of those are, things are different about chapter 5. Um, let me read it um, and you'll get a flavor of um, uh, the way that the, uh, the prayer works. It's mostly lament. It's still mostly um, grieving. Uh, but then you'll see uh, the last few verses shift gear. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. 
We must buy the water we drink. Our, our wood can only be had at only a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We're weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us, and there is no one to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us, beyond measure. You kind of want to turn over the page, don't you, and hope that there's another verse uh, after that. Um, intriguingly, when um, this, um, traditionally when this is read in, in Jewish contexts, uh, 21, verse 21 gets repeated again at the end after verse 22, almost as if it's unbearable to end uh, with that note of kind of uncertainty. Um, three quick reflections. We need to... Uh, uh, to finish, um, three quick reflections uh, on the way uh, that Lamentations prays in the face of, of the awfulness of what has taken place. I think the first thing um, to, to learn is, is to express pain, to speak out agonies to God. I mean, that, that's what the most of the chapter is, isn't it? It's, it's a litany of hurt. Uh, remember, Lord, what has happened to us. And I think in the face of suffering, uh, we must learn the simple but very powerful lesson to speak out our agony and our pain. One writer comments, no pain is so devastating as the pain a person refuses to face. And no suffering is as long-lasting as the suffering that is left unacknowledged. Find words for our pain. Speak out the hurt and address those words to God. That's what a lament does. There are many laments in the Psalms um, and this is a striking lament at the end of Lamentations. Uh, and we say these things not because God doesn't know what has happened, but because in the midst of suffering, in, in the midst of our trouble, there is something right and proper and good and necessary 
to remember God. To remember his promises. To remember his covenant. To remember his love. And call upon him to act in accord with those things. That's what faith does in the midst of trouble. But, but secondly, notice also um, that in the midst of our suffering, it's right and proper to acknowledge our sin. The chapter does that too, doesn't it? And we need to be careful here, um, because as we've uh, thought um, previously um, in, f- uh, in past weeks, um, the relationship between sin and suffering is not neat and tidy. Sometimes suffering is the direct result of sin. We looked at some New Testament verses two weeks ago that indicate that sometimes uh, that is the case. But usually that's not the case. Most of the time there is no such direct, neat, tidy link. Job suffered terribly, though he was righteous. The man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus says, neither he nor his parents sinned. There isn't a tight personal link between sin and suffering most of the time. But, but, but there is a global, um, I probably should have drawn some diagrams for you, there is a global sense in which sin and suffering is linked. You know, the, the sin that all of us are caught up in is in that sense linked with the suffering that the world is caught up in, in that sort of big general sense. You know what I mean? Not in a tight individual sense, but in a, in a broad global sense, in the, in the way that all of us are caught up in this rebellion against God. Uh, and as a result, our world is a suffering world. That, that is the case. There is that link. Um, and our writer knows about these things. Verse 7, he speaks of the sin of the ancestors. Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. And he doesn't say that crossly as if that's not fair. It's kind of an acknowledgement that that he is part of this people, a sinning people. And it's no surprise uh, that trouble comes as a result, that God does bring judgment upon sin. Uh, And he knows that he, they know that they, are just the same. Verse 16, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. So in our struggle and our difficulty, it's right to speak to God both of our pain, but also an acknowledgement that we are sinners in need of help. Which leads finally to an appeal for that help. Let me read the conclusion again, because it's very striking. You, Lord, reign forever. The writer begins with the the belief in God's sovereignty. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. God is in charge. God is sovereign. He rules. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us? so long. Now, you get the why question there, but it's not the why is this suffering happening to us, is it? It's a different kind of why that he's asking here. It's, it's 
Why do you forget us? Why are you forsaking us? And, and I don't think that's a kind of, please, could you explain it to me? I think it's a different kind of, of why question. It's more like an appeal. I don't, know if, I don't know if this works for you, but you know, a child, um, and um, I know dad's going off to work on a business trip or whatever, um, or mum's going off to work on a business trip, and the child says, oh, why do you have to go to work? Why can't you stay at home? And, and the child is not asking for a sort of detailed explanation of the economics of the family at that point, you know, and sort of you know, asking him to go through the bank balance and explain. It's not that kind of a why, is it? It's a, you know, why, why can't you stay? Why can't you be here with me? It's, it's an appeal. And I think that's the tone of this too. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Please. And then finally, restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. It's strikingly dependent, isn't it? Did you catch the flavor of that? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. As if the people know that they can't even get back to God on their own. If they're going to get back to God, if they're going to return to God, it's got to be that God has got to restore them. Did you feel that dependent upon God? Even to repent, you need his help. Even to turn back to him, he's got to work. You can't even do that for yourself. You can't even admit your sin and turn back to him, to plead for him, to help you. He's got to even work that in you. We are that needy of his help. The lament is a prayer of faith. That there are words, as it were, expressed by a believer who is clinging to a God that they can barely understand. But they are still clinging to him. Even in the absence of so much that they wish they knew and they don't. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. What a funny ending. Full of uncertainty. Is there really any hope? Or have you rejected us forever? That's all the Old Testament believer had. And in a sense, that's all we have this side of eternity too, isn't it? Because the depression may not lift. The infertility may not pass. The cancer may spread. We live with uncertainty now. Only in eternity will we be certain of things. The certainty either of eternal blessing or the very horrible certainty of eternal loss. So how should we pray? We'll pray in imitation of this writer in Lamentations. As one who knows the depth of their own sin, one who acknowledges the awfulness 
and the rightness of God's judgment, and one who nevertheless appeals to his goodness to act. But of course we have more to go on, don't we? Lamentations ends with uncertainty. Unless you've forgotten us, unless you've rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, we do have something better. On the cross, Christ was utterly rejected. And it's on that basis and that basis alone that we can be confident that we need not be. If you have winced at the horrors of this portrayal of suffering, then know that Christ bore every bit of it and more on the cross. That's the scale of the love of our God, that he would do such a thing. And that's why we don't end uh, our evening with the uncertainty of verse 22, um, but with the glorious promise of the gospel of Christ who took our pain and our punishment. Let's be quiet for a moment. I think the band's going to come back up. We're going we're to sing. Um, I'm very grateful to Matt for writing um, this song uh, that we've been singing these last couple of weeks. Um, he even tweaked it, I think, between week one and week two. 